I'm always amazed at how God anticipates um, our needs, and it was no coincidence, I believe, that we had highlighted today at our prayer time, or at the offering time, prayer. Prayer is a, a vital part of our church, but I can't remember many weeks when we needed it more. But I think as the body of Christ, uh, today it would be very appropriate more than to urge you to pray. It felt right in, as part of our worship to pray. And so I'm going to suggest that before we go ahead with the message this morning that we hold before the Lord as the body of Christ today, these uh, people in Littleton, as our hearts are broken, their hearts are broken, that we pray for their comfort and their healing and the entire healing for our country and the lessons to be learned from this. And then we pray for um, just and trustfully rapid peace in uh, Kosovo as this carnage goes on. I know as Christians, we sometimes wring our hands and just feel all this stuff's out of control. Evil is popping up everywhere. What can we do? And yet through history, we know the Bible says prayer is a profound leverage to bring against the forces of evil. And let's do that right now. I'm going to suggest we just have a time of silence, which is good. And in your own way, bring these prayers before God today. Lord, you told us that if we seek you, we'll find you. And today, the very events of our world have reminded us again of our need for you, the power of evil, the frailty of life, and sometimes the messes that just seem so hopelessly tangled up there doesn't seem to be an answer. And Lord, we're so glad that as Christians, we're resurrection people, that we know you're a God who takes Good Fridays and makes Easter mornings. And how we need that in Littleton, how we need that in Kosovo, where there just don't seem to be answers. Hatred seems to be so paramount. Killing seems to have uh, taken over life. And so God, we ask, as you have told us to ask, for your intervention healing and restoration and, and learning from this carnage in Littleton. An end to killing is an answer to try to bring peace to Kosovo. God, bring in a negotiated peace there somehow that nobody can quite today know how that can happen. We as your people cry out to you, Lord, because you, you've promised, you said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. God, we claim that promise, not only for America, but for the world today. In Jesus' name, amen. 
as I um, approach the subject today, I, I want to highlight just the, the, the last part of the text before we proceed of why this subject is visited and revisited. Jesus said that it's almost impossible for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And by any measure in the world, that's us. It takes a miracle. And that we're here as Christians learning how to live in Silicon Valley in these times and place in a way that Jesus Christ would have us to live when the entire culture all week long forces us in another direction. It's in that context that I want us to hear the message today where Jesus is talking to a Silicon Valley type super achiever. And he comes flashing his track record of moral character that would put most of us as churchgoers to shame. And what he wants is simple. He wants assurance that he can get to heaven as one more of his achievements along with his record in the world. He, he, wanted, this, he wanted his place secured. He wanted the ticket purchased. And without raining on his parade of being a good person, Jesus gives this surprising response. He said, well, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. With one stroke, Jesus punches through his scorecard of achievements, touches the one barrier separating him from a personal relationship with God, the barrier that's created that very hunger in his soul that brought him to Jesus in the first place. You see, nothing is wrong with wealth. We always say that. Jesus never condemned wealth unless it disguises our need for God's grace and unless we worship it as our source of security in place of God. And note the story here ends with the tragedy of this guy who had everything turning away sadly because he couldn't conceive of loosening his grip on what he thought was his security, literally on what he thought was his life. And what's so sad is this is a nice guy and he's walking away from the only real security any human being has in this world, trusting God, trusting his promises, caring for his ch the children of God as God has cared for us, which is the key to life. The guy walked away from that. He couldn't get it because he couldn't let go of this idol that had him in captivity that really wasn't security anyway. I thought this story is so Silicon Valley that I wanted us to then take a second look as God sort of planned it last summer at the lessons in this story. First, personal achievements have little to do with becoming qualified for heaven. This guy at an early age, we're told, already had amassed a small fortune, as many people in Silicon Valley have done. Had lived an impeccable moral life, and what's more, he was such a neat citizen, he wanted to finish out his portfolio with a spiritual pilgrimage to find God. I'm going to call this guy Silicon Valley Harry at his best. He's a nice person. And he views Christianity as, as this one more item of in his portfolio of worth. This is what brings a lot of people to church. For some reason, unlike where in most America this isn't true, but here, this isn't a bad place to come. It's not bad to be seen here. What Jesus wants this man to understand is no one achieves enough goodness to become righteous in God's sight. No one's that good. A right relationship with God can only be received one way, as a free gift based upon an awareness, I need it and I can't achieve it, but I want it and I'm willing to sacrifice to get it by trusting Jesus Christ. Receiving that gift is what we call grace. 
kind of getting into the story, I, I, I can almost hear this guy say, ouch, when Jesus tells him how to acquire grace. Go sell all your possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and then come and follow me. What if Jesus told you that today? You see, he said, I want you to give away your winnings. The evidence of your worth, your security, as calculated by secular culture, come and follow me, and I'm going to show you an alternative lifestyle that has value in God's sight, that will give you the joy and fulfillment you're looking for, and that God will provide for you, but you've got to trust me, take a leap of faith to get there. And this is what the guy couldn't do. He couldn't loosen his grip and come and follow Jesus. Because you see, come follow me means stop trying to impress God with who you are and with what you can do and with what you possess and get in line with my other disciples, that motley crew of broken people who have nothing to offer God but their poverty, their brokenness, and their need for the great physician. That's hard for people in this area to do. I, I think this teaching is both offensive and revolutionary. Robert Capon in his book, Parables of Judgment, puts it so well this way. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away because it works only for losers. And no one wants to stand in their line. The world of winners will buy scads of self-improvement techniques and a whole truckload of transcendental hot air. But it will not buy for free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the lamb. That's profound. You see, loser is a term we avoid at all costs while we're attracted to the word winner. And we love to come to Jesus as a winner. And Jesus reveals that God doesn't ask us to be winners. In fact, God can't work with winners because we can't earn his love. It's our poverty, it's our need that opens the door for healing. Jesus says, I can't fix you if you don't know you're sick. It's our sickness that opens the door to heaven. To us, the unworthy. And again, the rich young ruler just, he didn't get it. And he turned away in sadness because Jesus asked him to loosen his grip on everything he, he believed gave him value as a person, what he thought was his life, what he worshiped. He asked himself, what can I offer? What else can I offer? Where, would am, I, where am I gonna find my security? I'll be poverty stricken. What about my old age? He just didn't get it when Jesus told him his achievements, his moral character had nothing to do with his value in God's sight. And the only way he was going to discover it was loosen his grip on the stuff that he was worshiping, the material things of this world. In fact, Jesus pointed out that his grip on his money meant he wasn't as moral as he thought he was because he was disobeying the first and the tenth commandment. First, you shall have no other gods before me. And secondly, about greed and covetousness. This revelation of how we find a, a right relationship with God, folks, is so countercultural, and, and, and that's why we revisit over and over again. We've got to come here to worship and get put back on track of God's truth with the light of Scripture because we are bombarded with a different gospel out there all week long. Achievers like us, you see, have difficulty hearing God asks us to loosen our grip on our scorecard of self-importance. Why? So we can discover our real value in God's sight. And I'm, I'm just so happy week after week to remind us that God loves us unconditionally, not with our exterior trappings, but as we are because we're his child, broken, dirty, needy, sinful. But he loves us so much that he, Jesus died for us. 
And that love is to so totally separated from anything we cling to so tightly, thinking we can offer that to God and somehow that's going to make him love us. So I guess the first real bullet that God would have us see in this text is a question. What criteria determines your self-worth this morning, really? And even more specifically, what are you gripping so tightly you couldn't give it up if Jesus asked you to give it up? And how does your answer stack up with what Jesus tells us in this story? Well, that's a, the first item of consideration. Secondly, we learn that when we recognize our need for grace, we win in God's sight. This is so like Jesus. He just turns everything in our culture upside down. He, he, he absolutely inverts what we consider to be reality so often. So I want us to look at another guy for a minute, Paul the Apostle. Here we meet another achiever. Now, Paul, before he met Jesus, was a Pharisee. That simply meant he worked morning till he went to bed at night doing one thing, impeccably obeying God's law. This guy was zealous for God. And then that day on the road to Damascus, he met Jesus. And a revolution happened in his life. All his values changed because Jesus changed his heart. His previous religious efforts, his frantic race to win the symbols of success of his culture. What did he say? He said, all that looks like rubbish. Everything I was living for, striving for, frantically seeking to acquire. When I met Jesus, it all looks like rubbish because it was something temporary. I was going to have to give it up. It wasn't worth my life. In fact, he put it this way. My ambition in life is to know Jesus, to know my need for his grace to readjust my ideas of success and winning. So now I regard all my previous efforts and goals as rubbish, that I may know him and his resurrection, becoming like him in his death. Paul got a new heart. Jesus became his focus in life. And because that was true, he became a servant to his neighbor. Love for Jesus, you see, always is expressed by reaching out to love a neighbor. And the reason we love Jesus is because he loved us. And that's why Paul would say, I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. Paul loosened his grip on things he previously valued. And this is important, not to earn his salvation, not to earn God's love. It was that he found such joy in knowing Jesus that anything the world offered him previously was dull by comparison. It reminded me of that old hymn I sang as a child. Turn your eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. You know, if anything should be happening in us as we come to worship, I'm hoping increasingly we're going to see the world and what it offers out there for what it is. And as we get a tighter grasp on Jesus, I would trust that the other things that our culture offers grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace so we get our priorities right. Jake last week from our college group greatly impressed me when he told about his experience of going to the city with the other college young men and women and they took the blankets that we donated to the homeless up there and it was a rainy day and he met two people. Remember, he met the guy who needed a belt and he met the woman with no teeth. And he said somehow in that experience of no longer talking about serving or loving Jesus by serving others, he did it. And when he did it, he and the other young men and women found a joy that was beyond description that made, if you wish, the things of this world, all the achievements of Silicon Valley look strangely dim 
compared with knowing right now I'm loving Jesus because I'm loving the kind of people he loves. And when I get involved in that, all the other stuff looks pretty dim. That's the journey I would suggest Jesus is taking us as a church on to understand we've been blessed to be a blessing to whom much is given, much is expected. This last week, I was, I've been thrilled, actually the last two weeks, to watch the container fill up. I, I hope you've seen it out in the back. You know, we've had young people work there. We've had singles. We've had seniors. We've had just a whole bunch of people. And you know, every day, no matter who was there, they were having a ball. There was something, a joy, about receiving all the clothes, stacking them into boxes, labeling them, putting them into the container. And then the people I watched who, who brought things. This year, we've really brought some good stuff brand new things. People thought in advance, what do they need in Russia? Not just cast-offs, but what do they really need that I can get to, to help them? One person saw our project on the internet and from St. Louis, I believe it was, sent boxes and a check saying, our church is too small to do that, but we want to get in on the, uh, the, the program of feeding Russia. I thought, that's so great. In fact, that container was so heavy Friday that it started sinking into the asphalt and they had to come and jack it up. Now, that is a symbol, folks, of what we can do together when we catch the vision of loosening our grip on the stuff that Silicon Valley would have us keep a death grip on because that's exactly what is a death grip. And when we loosen it, this church potentially can do things that will impact the world and that's the vision that I would hold before you. No one person here probably could have filled that container, but look what we did. And think what that, if we think of vision out there, what we can do together. We'll surprise ourselves. Fifteen of us went up to the inner city yesterday to work in a Spanish-speaking church and clean bathrooms and fix stairs. And I could just go on and on and on and paint the picture of what this church is about. Our church isn't here just to build bigger buildings and to have bigger budgets and to put in food courts and bowling alleys and have sort of fortress uh, Menlo Park press so we can escape from the world. We're here to do what Jesus did. To, 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 you might say poverty stricken, let ourselves become poverty stricken to some degree so we can get out there and do what Jesus did. We become poor so they can become rich and in the process, we become rich. That's the message Jesus tried to help this guy understand and he just didn't get it. Now, here's the serious part. According to Jesus, God's judgment falls on those who don't get it or who won't get it, who want to go on seeking to earn God's approval because unless that mindset changes that somehow we're going to achieve the salvation that Jesus offers, to have him give it to us as a reward or a wage, we're going to refuse to take our place in the grace line and when we don't line up with the other broken people in the grace line as poverty-stricken beggars who can only receive, not earn, we're going to be separated from God and his grace forever. And that's pretty serious. You see, on Judgment Day, there are two books, the book recording our sins and the book of life. And for Christians, the book of life is the only one that's opened. Our sins are buried with Christ forever that he bore on the cross and bore them away. And I say, hallelujah for that, that I don't ever have to give an account for my sins. The good news is that our relationship with God is not a matter of bookkeeping. As Capon reminds us, if we could have been saved by bookkeeping, we would have been saved by the law of Moses. The law was a good idea. God gave it a few hundred years and no one passed the test. And we still don't. 
And then it became clear that there are none righteous, no, not one. The rich man didn't get it. All of his credentials, his stuff, they were as filthy rags in God's sight. He didn't understand that this world, like our world on the peninsula, isn't the real world. If suddenly all of us were stripped of our material well-being, as the refugees in Kosovo are, we would find just how equally we all are in need of God's grace. As the writer of Revelation puts it, you say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing, but you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. I trust that'll never be said about Menlo Press. What's the bottom line of the story? Jesus says the only way we're ever going to get it right in God's sight is to receive our rightness as a free gift. And we're going to say that over and over again in this church because that gift was purchased on the cross of Jesus. Heaven is for losers who never got anything right and it's for winners who just gave up on winning. And we all came together to drink of the well of grace and we drink freely week after week after week because we need it. There's no other way. And then you see, once we experience this grace and drink it freely, almost like an involuntary reaction, we give up our games of self-indulgence. We loosen our grip on me and mine and we start, stop worshiping this stuff that won't be around 100 years from now. And in gratitude to Jesus, we just give ourselves away to others now as Jesus gave himself away for us. Making that choice, I guarantee you, will give us joy, fulfillment, It'll make us come fully alive. And I would suggest that a lot of people in Silicon Valley who have it all are still looking for life because they're very restless. So as you go home today, let me ask you again, what are you gripping so tightly that's preventing you from becoming fully alive in Jesus Christ? Loosen your grip. Let it go. Stop your futile effort to become good enough to win God's approval and stop gripping lesser things so tightly that you miss the freedom and joy of using the blessings God entrusted to your care to bless others. Make a choice. And in the process, receive an inheritance in heaven you'll never lose. And meanwhile, together, I believe our church is about to make a global impact because we are a group coming alive to the fact that it's all grace God's lavished upon us. We have to make a response and our gratitude will be expressed in being a servant to others as Jesus served us. Can you imagine what's going to happen? I hope we catch the vision. I hope we'll share the joy. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you for reminders today about what reality really is, what value is, what truth is. We live in a culture where so many people are giving themselves to myths. And yes, maybe it is impossible for rich people to get into your kingdom, but God, we're rich in grace, which is makes all of our other riches look dim by comparison. Help us to understand we've been blessed to be a blessing and to get about that business, not in the future when it's convenient, but now. Surprise us, God, by what we can do together. Make the container out in the backyard of microcosm 
of what we can do together if we once commit ourselves to that course. In Jesus' name, amen.